I don't know about you, but I've been especially blessed by Ruth and seeing the, the wonderful truths of, of God and of grace that are present through all ages of Scripture from the beginning to today and beyond. Really a blessing to be studying through this book. When we left last week, you'll recall that Ruth had just been returning back from gleaning in Boaz's field. And when he learned that she was the woman who had shown grace upon Naomi, who had provided and sworn loyalty and had been merciful to the widow, along with the fact that she sought refuge under the wings of the Lord, he decided, Boaz decided he wanted to show grace towards Ruth. So Boaz encouraged her to glean alongside his maidservants and provided her with food and water and protection. He made his burden easier by asking the reapers to leave some of the grain stalks behind. What most impressed us is that Boaz didn't do this in regards to obeying the law. He far exceeded the law. Boaz was a man of grace. And the provision which he extended towards the foreigner and Gentile Ruth went far beyond anything the law would have given her. Let's take a moment again now as we begin to draw attention to the image of Christ that we observe through the life of Boaz. Boaz was a man from the tribe of Judah. He originated in the town of Bethlehem. And though he himself was living under the law, he far exceeded the demands of the law. He freely extended grace to a Gentile. We'll learn today that Boaz is a close relative. He's a kinsman redeemer to Naomi. So according to the law, he had these credentials to purchase back and redeem these two widows from a very desperate situation. A situation that they didn't have any control over themselves. Unmistakably redemption being extended to the Gentiles and their exclusion into the people of God is a very common theme in Ruth. Here we see a vivid picture of Christ in that book that was written a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. So concerning these reflections of Christ, the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees were looking to kill Jesus. This is primarily because he referred to himself as God's Son. By doing so, they understood that Jesus himself equated himself to God. And in John 5, Jesus presents five evidences to himself that they should have recognized. Five irrefutable evidences. The first one is just like God the Father, Jesus is the life giver. Not only would that be observed in the resurrection from the dead by both Lazarus and by Jairus' daughter and others, it would be observed in a paramount way in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was the life giver. That was number one. The second was the testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was broadly regarded as a prophet, and he testified to Jesus Christ 
as being the light, the light of men. The religious elite didn't want to listen to that. There was a third, and that was the miracles themselves. Jesus was doing lots of miracles, and Nicodemus, who was one of the Pharisees, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then fourth, there was the verbal declaration of God himself from heaven at the baptism of Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So those are four in in John chapter 5. Now thinking back and looking at the book of Ruth as a reflection of Christ through the life of Boaz, does anyone remember the fifth evidence that Jesus gave of himself in John chapter 5? Concerning his claims to be the Son of God, it's in the Holy Scriptures. Evidences of Jesus Christ are in the Holy Scriptures. They should have seen this. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus rebukes those religious leaders and says this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, Jesus says, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The scriptures teach about Jesus Christ. Now the Pharisees would not receive nor acknowledge any of these evidences because they were void of the Spirit of God. And today if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, which is indwelling you, ought to affirm in your heart these sincere truths about Christ that we read and are evident in the book of Ruth. There are some here, of course, that might be a bit difficult to understand. A few that are hard to discern while studying through this. But it shouldn't seem to you as though we, when we progress through this book that I'm just making this up. We should be able to see Christ because Jesus said, These scriptures testify to me. The scriptures are the sword of the Spirit. And they testify to the indwelling Holy Spirit that dwells within us concerning the biblical truths of Jesus Christ. Now you might remember, on the day of his resurrection, Jesus approached two men. These two men were walking on the road to Emmaus, a small town near Jerusalem. These men were confused and, and disappointed at the crucifixion of Christ. And the narrative says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. On the day of his resurrection, remember the only Old Testament scriptures that were there were the Old Testament scriptures. There were no New Testament scriptures yet at this time. So he's explaining to them through books like the Psalms and Isaiah and probably even Ruth that was written a thousand years before Christ was born. More than a thousand years. And what was the men's response? The men on the road to Emmaus? What did they say after listening to him? They said in Luke 24, verse 32, Were our, not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? No other book on the planet dares to do what the Bible does, describing a man 
more than a thousand years, closer to 1,500 years through all those books about the wonderful mercies of Jesus Christ. This is the very Word of God. My point is, Boaz did not have the book of Ruth to go by. He didn't have the prophets to read. They weren't written yet. At most, his understanding was limited to Genesis, Exodus, the Levitical law, probably Job, probably the conquests that occurred under Joshua. He didn't know anything about the Psalms of David or the Proverbs of Solomon. Those men weren't born yet. Isaiah? Nope. Not for at least another 300 years. So beyond general statements such as, through Abraham, all nations will be blessed, on a practical level, how would Boaz arrive at the conclusion the Gentiles were to be grafted into the people of God? From a human perspective now, where would Boaz get the idea that grace was supposed to be extended to the Gentiles? Well, Boaz was a direct descendant of Rahab the harlot. We don't know how long after Rahab Boaz was born, because most of the Hebrew genealogies are abbreviated, not only to preserve space, but also to uh, amplify key figures in the genealogy, key figures of the ancestry. But depending on the time lapse involved, it is very plausible, as a grandma that Rahab bounced young Boaz on her knee when he was a boy. And while he was a young boy, she might have personally said to Boaz, let me tell you about the grace that the Lord extended to the Gentiles when the walls of Jericho fell. We know Rahab lived into this period of the judges. Near the time the events of Ruth took place, don't know how near, the man who wrote or narrated the book of Joshua, uh, compiled Joshua's conquests. He put them together and narrated them and documented Joshua's death at the end of Joshua. So now we are in the period of the judges, the period that followed Joshua's conquests. Now obviously this summation of the writer of Joshua was living in this period after Joshua. And the writer of Joshua adds into his narration, listen to this, Joshua 6.25, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. So Rahab was still living into the period of the judges when Ruth and Naomi and Boaz were alive. So my point is, not a whole lot of time passed between Rahab and that of Boaz. And their family had no doubt that extending grace to the Gentiles was within the plan of God. It was always part of God's plan. And now as we turn back to our text in Ruth chapter 2, we find by the reaction of Naomi that the grace is exceedingly generous as it's extended through Boaz. In chapter 2, verse 19... Ruth's mother-in-law then said to Ruth, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. Naomi realized that 30 to 40 pounds of barley was a big haul for one day for one person. 
You couldn't do that alone without help. So she knows already that someone's given grace. And she pronounces a blessing upon the thus far unidentified individual. And then the verse continues. So Ruth told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. That's when the bells and whistles start going off in the mind of Naomi. She realizes God is involved in these circumstances and has not forgotten them. In verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May Boaz be blessed of the Lord, the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Naomi then pronounces a second blessing on Boaz and now recognizes that all hope is not lost for her and for her daughter-in-law. She'd said, if you remember in chapter 1, when she came back into Judah, that she was empty. Her life was empty. There was no hope when she arrived back in Judah. But now she sees the Lord has not forgotten her. And she's beginning to be filled with that hope. That hope that God has not forgotten. That's because she knows that the Lord has not withdrawn his kindness from the living and the dead. Naomi sees the entrance of Boaz into the picture as a provision from the Lord being kind to the living, that is Naomi and Ruth, as well as the dead. The dead here refers to Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. Elimelech had no children left to carry on the family name, and no immediate brothers left to marry Naomi or Ruth in order to provide descendants for Elimelech's branch of the family tree. Remember now, the law required an Israelite to marry his dead brother's widow if she had no children and no one to care for her. And it's for the primary purpose of providing a posterity to the, the fallen brother. Deuteronomy 25.5 says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. That's the law. The brother here in this text is celebrated as a kinsman or relative redeemer. It is in the Hebrew a term, Geol. And the Geol was a vital part to a functioning society under the parameters of the law. It was also important for the partition of the land, which was granted as an inheritance to the members of each tribe. And each branch of the family tree got a partition or inheritance in the land. And if you didn't have an heir, what would happen? your branch is going to do what? Die out. You're going to be blotted out from the people of Israel. The relative redeemer was a picture illustration of extending grace towards a brother, and it was efficacious under several situations, each time redeeming a fallen brother. Uh, Listen to a few of these. In Numbers 
Chapter 35, verse 19, the Gaal was responsible for avenging the death of a murdered brother. That was one of the responsibilities. In Leviticus, chapter 25, he was required to redeem back or buy back the land of an impoverished brother, a brother who had fallen on hard times. The point was to keep that portion of the land within the family so when that impoverished brother could get back up on his feet, that brother could get his land back. God's nation of Israel didn't exist for the purpose of trying to get as much land as you could and trying to make an estate as big as you could and build a name as big as you could. Everything was supposed to be done to glorify the name of God. In fact, the year of Jubilee probably remember that term that was inserted to make sure that that didn't happen that someone didn't end up getting some giant piece of the pie at others hardship and others expense Israel had this year of jubilee where all debts were forgiven and all land that had debts on it would revert back to the original owner it would go back to that family again so the point is Israelites were supposed to be enthusiastic enthusiastic towards restoring and helping out a brother in need. A brother who had fallen on hard times. This is the way a properly functioning religious society is supposed to work. You're supposed to be your brother's redeemer. And uh, one final example we have here, Leviticus 25 verse 47. That same kinsman redeemer was also called to purchase and redeem back a brother out of slavery. So just one of the many functions of the kinsman redeemer is in the event of an untimely death. An untimely death, uh, it was time for the brother to step in, marry the widow, and provide some descendants to that deceased brother. It was compulsory. It wasn't optional for the immediate brother. Uh, If he refused, it brought great shame on him publicly if he refused to do this when the widow came to him and demanded him to do so. They would say, they'd be in the city gate and actually, they would, the woman would spit in his face publicly. The people would say, you mean to tell me that you won't carry on the name of your dead brother? The law was good. The law was good. There's a problem. The problem in our story is, Elimelech, had no living brothers. In this case, the law didn't provide for a redeemer. What did we learn last week concerning the law? There's just one thing better than the law, right? What's that? Grace. In comparison to the law, grace permits a more distant relative, uncles, cousins of the same bloodline, The option to volunteer themselves in to redeem a widow. Non-compulsory. And he could provide children to carry on the family name and and to care for the widow. And Naomi realizes this could potentially be an opportunity with Boaz. That's if he decides to insert himself as a redeemer. So once again, grace trumps law common theme here in Ruth, isn't it? And yet, 
people always want to return to the law. We see that all the time in the church age. People want to go back to observing the Sabbath. People want to go back to observing dietary restrictions. People want to go back to dividing up their cumin and their mint rather than living by grace. Everybody wants to live under the law. I don't want to live under the law. I was hoping Mark Zook would be here today so I could apologize for saying that. Mark Zook, if you don't know, is a Florida State trooper. I was going to ask him if he ever runs into someone on I-95 doing about 88 and a 70. I was going to ask him, when you pull them over and look in their window, do they want law? No. They want grace, don't they? You bet they want grace. Grace is a good thing. Trumps the law every time. Returning to verse 20, it says, Again, Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. So Naomi restates that Boaz is not only a relative. He's the closest relative. Some translations say near kin. Does anyone have a hunch of what this term closest or near kin is in the Hebrew? Goal. Yeah, redeemer. He is a relative redeemer. That's right, he qualifies to step into the picture. So Naomi is saying with Ruth, I got my eye on him. I've got my eye on him. But first things first, Boaz has to be, be willing to insert himself into the picture. Because the law doesn't require it of him. So for now, what do the women need to do? They need to stay close. They need to stay close. In verse 21, Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, meaning not only is he a close relative, Furthermore, Boaz said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all of my harvest. So if you're Ruth, you're in a desperate situation, you're weighing all your options to see who can help you out, is it now sensible to start to diversify your options? After Boaz went to extraordinary lengths to extend extra grace towards Ruth and Naomi, is it wise to risk offending Ruth by being seen in one of his neighbor's fields? And for what reason? For what purpose? If you've been offered grace by a redeemer, why would you forsake that to go shop somewhere else? How would that make any sense? These two widows do not currently have any protection of the immediate clan. It's a vicious culture, as we know, from the author of Judges. He assures us, in this period, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. The text reveals that was a concern. Ruth being faced with a genuine risk of being assaulted if she wandered into another field uh, is told by Naomi. Verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. That falling upon has been translated as mugged, assaulted. It was a dangerous society. Why would you leave grace and go out on your own? 
So Naomi and Ruth agree to go all in with Boaz. You know, uh, stability and security in our day, it's always being exemplified in the concept of diversifying yourself. Diversifying yourself. Financial advisors counsel us to spread out our, our risk. Put one egg in over here, put another egg in over there, so if you fall down or something falls, not all the eggs get broken, right? That's good advice if you're planning for retirement. That's good advice. But when you've identified a Redeemer who offers you an abundance of grace, He's willing to provide to you completely free at no cost to you, you better not turn your back. That's what Naomi and Ruth would risk losing if they turn their nose at the grace offered to them by Boaz. So when the door is open to receive grace, you need to receive it. Today, Jesus Christ is that Redeemer. He offers you all the riches of free grace at no cost to you. You might say, well, I don't know what you mean. I'm not poor, don't really need a whole lot, I'm financially stable, quite comfortable actually. Why would I need that? And perhaps you came in today because you've heard one of the preachers on television saying how much God wants to bless you and you might think it's wise to cover all of your bases and stop into church now and then just to see if there's really something to all this Jesus stuff. You might want to diversify your spiritual portfolio. And, uh, of course, you want to make sure you don't rule out other options as well. You don't want to get too serious about Jesus because, you know, there's a whole lot of other religions out there, too, that seem to have a lot of good things going for them. It might seem pretty logical to you that since there are so many religions in the world, there must be more than one place to receive God's blessing of the gift of grace. That's what seems right to you, anyhow. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it is the way of death. God the Father does not allow you to diversify spiritually. Diversifying spiritually is not wise, it's actually catastrophic. God does not offer the freedom to sniff around at other religions as if it's a smorgasbord. You're going to try a little bit of this here, and you're going to try a little bit of that here, and you're going to bring it all together and kind of formulate your own menu. See what you can come up with your own brand of religion that you fabricated yourself on your own. I've heard it said before, religion isn't Burger King. True religion isn't. You don't get to have it your way. God has offered His Son, Jesus Christ, as Redeemer. Jesus did not come to reveal to men and women that they're impoverished financially. He came to reveal that we're impoverished spiritually. We need to be provided a way back to God because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all forever separated from God through our disobedience. Scripture says that the wages of sin, that which we earn from our sin, the wages of sin is death. And that is spiritual death. You can be physically alive and healthy today. You can feel just fine and still be spiritually dead to God. 
a man considering following Jesus, said to Jesus, Permit me first to go bury my father. His father was probably aged. You know, father wasn't dead yet. He was buying time. He said, Permit me to have time to go and spend my last couple of years with my father. I can appreciate that. I got to spend the last few years of life with my dad out in the mission field. Problem is, people can live on and on and on and on. There was no end date to this request. So he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. You can be perfectly alive, physically alive, and still dead to God. The man was trying to buy some time. Jesus said, you don't have any time. You might pull out onto the causeway or pull out onto the interstate here today. Get broadsided by a Mack truck. You don't know how much time you have. The scripture says, Hebrews 9.27, it's allotted for man to die once and then comes the judgment. Are you ready for that? Today could be the day. I remember a story about D.L. Moody before the Chicago fire. You might have heard this. And he was a type that would give gospel invitations regularly. And uh, the Sunday before the Chicago fire... He got off track and he didn't make a gospel invitation. He didn't present it clearly. He, he gave them the tenets of the gospel and said, now you need to make a decision about this. Think about this during the week, excuse me. And when you come back next week, I want you to have your decision in hand. Then the Chicago fire happened. A whole bunch of people that were in that audience died that week. They never made it back. Moody said to himself, I'll never again go without calling for a decision wise. Wise. He was an evangelist. Gifted evangelist. We're all facing judgment, but scripture says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by living a sinless life of obedience, Christ has opened up a path for you and for me to be considered righteous. Not through righteousness of our own, but through the righteousness of God's own Son. As Christ died on that cross there, he died for the sins that you and I have committed. And the door is now open. Scripture says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was our substitute. And then to think that God the Father was so gracious to allow his perfect sinless son to be battered and tortured and murdered for our sins that he'd then be willing to wait around and watch as people try to try out other religions. Why don't I just shop around for a while? God doesn't allow that, to go dabble in other religions. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. I do hear a lot of people that are professing Christians that from time to time, we'll insist that, you know, those other world religions aren't all that bad. Buddha has a way to God, too. And seeing that, they make a very tragic mistake. By default, 
in that situation, you insist that Jesus did not have to suffer and die on that cross for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't have to die for us to be saved according to that logic. According to that logic, God didn't have to sacrifice his son at all. We could all just go across the street to the Buddhist temple or the Hindu temple or the Muslim temple and get saved over there. In effect, you're telling God, you wasted your time. Why did you send your son Jesus to go when we could have just gone over here to get saved? There is no other path over here or over there. There's one path, and it's Jesus Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. For you and I were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I plead with you today to not insult the Father or reject the Son. Don't think you can just wander to another place to get saved at another time. Acts 4.12 assures us there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Please trust in Christ. He is the Redeemer. He is the one that can reconcile you to God. Final verse, verse 23. Ruth and Naomi stayed close to their Redeemer. Redeemer that was provided by the Lord, as Christ was provided to you. Said that Ruth stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. She didn't stray to the left or to the right, but stayed with the Redeemer. The typical barley and wheat harvest at this time lasted about two months. That's about how much time she worked there with uh, the maids of Boaz. And it says she lived with her mother-in-law. Where did they live? We know they were poor and destitute. We'll learn in chapter 3 that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, had a piece of land left back there that he walked away from. It is very possible that there was a modest home sitting on that land from before their trip down into Moab. It is possible there was a shack there of some kind that was either used by someone else or just left standing over the 10, 15 years, whatever it was, at least 10. Commentators think 10 to 12 years. So they came back. They might have had a place there right by that piece of land where they were able to live. And that's why uh, it says that Ruth lived with Naomi. Now they're at the end of the harvest and they need to make their next move. What are they going to do? We'll find out in our next text. Let's pray. Lord God, you are such a magnificent Redeemer. Lord, to send Jesus Christ to us. And we can look into Scripture and see, Lord, how you've woven Jesus Christ through the entire, what we refer to as the Old Testament, Lord through the prophets, through the law, Lord, through Genesis and Psalms and Proverbs, all the grace that is abundant through you, uh, dear Lord God. We thank you for 
Jesus Christ dying for our sins, Lord. We were desperate ourselves. We were impoverished spiritually. We were dead to you. And yet, you sent your Holy Spirit, Lord, to turn the light on and draw us to your wonderful, beloved Son. Lord, I pray today if anyone has been considering what the end holds, if anybody's been in question of wondering whether or not there might be some truth in Christianity and there might be some truth elsewhere, Lord, that you would convict the hearts today of those individuals that Jesus Christ is the only way. That he is such a wonderful, beautiful Savior and Redeemer, Lord God, that we, none of us here, would ever turn our backs or walk to the left or to the right or to away from him. Lord, thank you for our wonderful church. Thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ and bringing us amongst people that, that love Jesus, that love one another, Lord, that are brothers watch out for one another, Lord, who step in when another brother falls. Lord God, it is, it is a blessing to be here, and there is no better place to be on this planet than in the body of Christ. Lord, bless all of these people. Bless all of us, Lord God, as we go out today to speak about Christ. Open doors ahead of us, Lord God, and, and help us to be kind, help us to be gentle, but help us to also be clear, Lord, that there is a Redeemer uh, that is available. Lord, uh, thank you. Thank you for all you provide here. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.